Well, this morning I want to invite you to grab your Bible, if you would. Put your thumb right about in the middle. Open it up, and you will likely land somewhere in the book of Psalms. And then turn with me to Psalm chapter 23. Psalm chapter 23. One of the first lessons that every Christ follower must learn is this. Ideas have consequences. Have you learned that lesson yet? That ideas or worldviews have consequences. Every worldview you see has a set of implications that will have, have a drastic effect on the way that you live your lives. One worldview that carries a massive set of implications is a worldview that many of you are familiar with. It's a worldview that was quite dominant in uh, the early 18th century in the United States. It's a worldview that is entitled deism. Deism essentially argues that God created the universe and then walked away and let his creation stand for itself. James Sire summarizes the, the main tenets of deism like this. He says, A transcendent God, as a first cause, created the universe, but then left it to run on its own. God is thus not imminent, that is, He is not involved with His creatures. He is not fully personal, not sovereign over human affairs, nor is He providential. Close quote. You will recall the words of Albert Einstein that I shared just a few weeks ago when the great uh, thinker said, I do not believe in a personal God, and I have never denied this, but I have expressed it clearly. The idea of a personal God is quite alien to me and even seems naive. When I heard those words from the, the pen of Albert Einstein, it reminded me of a, a sermon that I heard John MacArthur preach several years ago. And within that sermon, Dr. MacArthur talked about a plane uh, trip that he had taken, and seated to the left of him was a Muslim man. And this Muslim man very quickly determined that John MacArthur was a pastor, and so he had a series of questions that he asked Pastor MacArthur. And as the discussion proceeded to some intense theological matters, MacArthur had the chance to ultimately share the gospel with this dear Muslim man. He told his new friend, that is, John MacArthur told his new friend, that he knew God personally. And I'll, I'll never forget when he shared the response of the Muslim man. His eyes got wide, and he looked at MacArthur, and he said, You know the God personally? He couldn't believe it. Because in, Mus in, in, in a Muslim world, you, you see, there is no personal God. God is only seen as transcendent. He is not imminent. He does not come into intimate relationship, as the Bible teaches, with His creatures. Remember this, ideas have consequences. And so whether you are a, a Muslim who denies that one can have a personal relationship with God, or if you're a deist who holds to an impersonal God, the, consequ the consequences are serious. And these consequences will have lasting and eternal effects on your life and your life to come. Let me share how it spells out. 
If God is impersonal, like deism says, then God will not reveal himself to us. If God is impersonal, as deism says, God will not and cannot perform miracles on our behalf. If God is impersonal, God simply will not send Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. If God is impersonal, God simply will not hear our prayers. And if God is impersonal, He, of course, will not gauge with His creatures on a personal level, as I've already expressed. Thankfully, as we know, thankfully, God reveals Himself to us. In the Word of God, as we have seen a few weeks ago in Psalm chapter 19, thankfully, our God does perform miracles, does He not? Thankfully, God did send Jesus Christ to be the final substitute for our sins. He does joyfully respond to our prayers and our pleas and our petitions, and He engages with us on a personal level. Now, Psalm chapter 23 is like a, a massive hammer that, that absolutely, absolutely destroys the lies of deism. But it does more than merely defeat the claims of deism. It actually tells us, it proclaims to us a God who draws near to us and helps us in our time of need. It tells us of a God who encourages His people. Now, before we look at this passage, I want to ask a series of questions. These are questions that are, are deeply personal and questions that will relate to you and you alone. These are questions I want to encourage you to, to internalize and take seriously and not say, oh, that that's, might be true of my wife or that might be true of my mom or my dad. That might be true of grandpa or grandma. I want you to internalize it and ask, what does it mean to you? And I want to begin this morning by asking, are you tired? Are you tired? Are you, are you worn out? I remember a barbershop that I used to go to, and as I was typing these words, I thought, wait a minute, what am I talking about? This was a long time ago when I went to a barbershop in Legrand, and I would go into this barbershop, and this, this barber had a, a, a picture, it was a cartoon character, uh, right above the chair that I sat in. And this cartoon character, it had this, this, this fraggled person. This person was just frazzled to death, if you can imagine this. And it said underneath the, the photograph, this, this cartoon, I only have one nerve left, and you're on it. Have you ever felt like that? That you're just at your wits end, you're, you're on your last nerve? Have you come this morning in need of spiritual refreshment? Have you come this morning and said, Pastor, I, I just need some encouragement. Well, Psalm chapter 23 is, as they say, just what the doctor ordered. It is filled with encouraging truth that is designed to strengthen weary souls. This is a passage of Scripture that if you have come discouraged or disheartened or beat up or lonely, is designed to, to lift you up. It is designed to encourage you. It is, it is designed to strengthen fatigued soldiers. And so would you look at this passage with me, and I would invite you to stand as we read God's Word in Psalm chapter 23. This is the psalm of King David, and he says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Uh, Thank you for the encouraging passage before us, God. I know that many of us, most of us, are, are very familiar with these words. Some of us even have these words committed to memory. And I pray that wherever we stand on the, on the spectrum of learning and knowledge, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would encourage your people, that you would edify your people, that if there are folks here this morning who are weary or discouraged or feeling beat up or lonely, having fear of the future, having regret of the past, guilty consciences. I pray that this passage would lift them up, that as we uh, unpack the gospel that emerges, that you would renew your people, that you would strengthen them. And for those who have never heard these words, or for those who have never taken the time to, to submit to the Savior, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That as we pray each week, that a mighty work of grace might take place in the heart of someone, perhaps even more than one person, that you would be glorified in this place. And so, would you encourage us with your word, by the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. That's the title of the message this morning. And as we meditate on the the words of Psalm chapter 23, verse 1, we will take extended time today to, to examine what I would like to label the profile of the shepherd. The profile of the shepherd. And then next week, we will turn our attention to the promises of the shepherd. The promises of the shepherd. So first of all, look again at verse 1. King David says, the, the Lord is my shepherd. This is the profile we want to concentrate on for a few minutes. And we want to begin by asking this question. Who is he? Who is he? Who is the shepherd that, that David has fallen in love with? Who is the shepherd who has, who has taken care of? Who is the shepherd who loves this Young man. Well, the first thing, according to John Frame, is that in one sense, he says this the first thing, and in one sense, the only thing we need to know about God is that He is Lord. So when we ask the question, Who is this shepherd? I want to anchor this reality in your minds and anchor this reality in your hearts when we learn about the shepherd, when King David writes of the shepherd and sings of the shepherd and, and worships the shepherd. We need to come back again and again to remind ourselves that the shepherd is Lord. I want to have you turn with me. Hold your finger in, in Psalm chapter 23 and just briefly turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. 
Exodus chapter 3, because I want to take a a few moments and develop this theme, this very important reality that the shepherd is Lord. While you're turning to Exodus 3, you remember that God revealed himself in this miraculous encounter. By the way, much to the contrary of deism. If deism were true, this encounter in Exodus chapter 3 never would have occurred. And so God reveals himself to Moses in what? In the burning bush. And he told Moses that he would rescue his people from the tyranny of the Egyptians. And Moses asks a question that I think most of us would ask if given the opportunity. Moses inquires about his name. And God replies with these well-known words, I am who I am. You like that? I am who I am. Then look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, and notice capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now notice, this is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. That is to say, God says his name is Yahweh. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. John Frame helps us once again. He says, so the name of God, the name by which he wants his people especially to remember him forever is Yahweh or Lord. And that's why we say, when we ask, who is this shepherd that David is so excited about? This shepherd is the Lord. You remember in Deuteronomy chapter 6 what our Jewish friends call the Shema. It goes like this. Hear, O Israel. Someone help me. The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Frame says, this is a confession of lordship, that Yahweh, the Lord, is the one and only true God. Try that out in a pluralistic culture. Try that out on the university campus where atheism rules. Try that out in the marketplace of ideas where where polytheism rules, where there are many gods and many deities. And here we learn the simple reality that the Lord our God is one. And as Frame says, therefore he deserves all our love and all our allegiance. That is to say, in simple terms, he is to be the object of our affections. He is the one we are to obey. And I'm sure you know by this point, that is not a popular message. That God is one, that He is the Lord, that we are to give all of our devotion and our worship and our allegiance to Him, and we are to obey Him. You think about some of the practical, controversial matters of the day. You think about homosexual mirage, for instance. You know what I'm referring to? It's not marriage. 
This is a mirage. This is a mirage, as Douglas Wilson once said. Homosexual marriage is, is a figment, figment of our imagination. It is, it is antithetical to the words of Scripture. You think about the sin of abortion. The sin of abortion is a, is a horrible sin. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of babies are, are ripped from the womb of a woman in America alone, let alone all around the world. This is a, a grievous sin against Almighty God. Well, in a pluralistic culture, we're told, be more tolerant, be more understanding, be more loving. But the Word of God tells us that these things are grievous sins in His eyes, and we are to offer all of our love and all of our worship and all of our adoration and all of our obedience to Yahweh the Lord. And this is a theme that, that we have learned quite a bit about over the last several years. We have learned about the Lordship of God, if you will. For instance, we have learned in a more general way that, that God is Lord over all the nations. God is Lord over every king. He is Lord over every, every queen. He is Lord over every president. He is Lord over every governor and every mayor and every, every senator. Every legislator, God is Lord over those individuals. It is His desire that His mighty name might be declared among the nations. Now, in the Bible, in generalities, we find three kinds of authoritative descriptions about God. And these will be worth noting is we find the names of God... We find the names of God. We find the attributes of God that we studied uh, several, several months ago. And then finally, we find images of God. Names of God, attributes of God, and images of God. I want to focus just for a minute on images. You say, what do you mean by images? Well, some of the images that you're familiar with in Scripture will liken God to a, a king, for instance. Our God is in the heavens, Psalm 115.3 says. He, he's in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. Or we learn and we pray to God as our Father. That's another image. Or we read in the Psalms that, that God is likened to a shield. Or He is our refuge. Or He is our rock. Now the image that we see in Psalm chapter 23 is a great one. It's the image of a shepherd. And we want to ask this question, now that we understand who He is, the, the, the reality that the shepherd is Lord, we want to ask, what does this shepherd do? But before we can answer that question, I need to say that the image of the shepherd, if you would just, the, a lot of you are kind of right-brained, right? You can imagine the image of the shepherd. If you're left-brained, work really hard on this with me, right? I'm left-brained, so I have a harder time. So think of the shepherd, and when you think of the shepherd, someone just, would you just yell out, what's one thing you see? said that? Edith, that, that is exactly what we should all be thinking about. Now, some of the other things we would think about, a shepherd has a staff. Some of you might see him with long hair, right? Kind of a rock star shepherd. That's, that's another story, right? Or we might see him with a, a long flowing robe. He might have dirt under his fingernails. There's all kinds of things you would imagine about a shepherd. But Edith, you're exactly right. When you think shepherd, you should think sheep, right? Word association. A shepherd, you automatically think of a sheep. In the Bible, the Christian, as you know, is referred to, and this is not a compliment, as a sheep. 
We are referred to as sheep. Psalm 79 says it like this. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. Psalm chapter 100. Know that the Lord, that He is God. It is He that has made us. We are His people. And we are the what? We are the sheep of His pasture. The sheep of His pasture. Can I say this without sounding too offensive? That the fact that we are called sheep, we need to remember this. The sheep is not the sharpest knife in the drawer. The sheep is not... I mean, wouldn't you rather be called a lion? Right? Or a gazelle? But we get the title sheep. Now, the sheep have several shortcomings. And we need to examine those shortcomings before we move on to see what the profile of the shepherd looks like and ask what the shepherd does. The first thing we learn about the sheep is that they get lost. Sheep have a tendency to get lost. In Psalm chapter 119, as you know, is the largest chapter in the book of Psalms and the largest chapter in the whole Bible. The psalmist says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Or Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Or the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 50, verse 6 says, My people have been lost sheep. The shepherds have led them astray, turning them on the mountains. For mountain to hill they have gone, they have forgotten their fold. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, we read, Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so it's not a compliment necessarily that we're called sheep because sheep get lost. And related to the fact that they get lost, we also know that sheep have a tendency to wander. They tend to just wander off. You are familiar with the old hymn that goes like this. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Now, why would anyone pen such a lyric? The answer is simple. Because sheep tend to wander. And we as God's people have a propensity to wander. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, You were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And so sheep get lost, sheep wander. Third, sheep are vulnerable creatures, aren't they? Left to themselves, left all on their own, a sheep, a sheep simply will not survive. Why? Because a sheep out in the desert or the wilderness is like a, a convenient snack for a would-be predator. Ezekiel chapter 34 helps us understand this. It says, As I live, declares the Lord, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the sheep have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 9. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. And then he said in Matthew 10, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. 
Sheep are not only have a propensity to get lost and wander and find themselves in a vulnerable, vulnerable position, but as I've already indicated, sheep are not very smart. They just aren't very smart. I recently read a story about a group of sheep several years ago, actually hundreds of sheep, who followed their unwise sheep leader, that is, the head of the sheep. And you know how they all went? One by one, they dropped off a cliff in Turkey. Boom, 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 right? That's what sheep tend to do. They're not very smart. And so the Bible compares the people of God to the sheep, the sheep who wrestles with a whole host of problems. These sheep are not only directionless, they have a propensity to wander aimlessly, and they're not very smart, as we've said. But here's the most vexing problem that the sheep faces, is the sheep, in and of himself, he is on a collision course with disaster. And here's why. The Bible says this about these sheep in Ephesians chapter 2. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope in without God in the world. Romans chapter 5 says these sheep are ungodly. Romans chapter 5.10 says these sheep are enemies of God. Romans chapter 8 said these sheep are hostile to God. The Bible puts it like this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. He says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or poisonous snakes is under their lips. And Paul concludes in Romans 3, verse 18, he says, Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Yet, yet, Jesus finds great joy and delight in being your shepherd. Charles Spurgeon says, What condensation is this, that the infinite Lord assumes toward His people the office and character of a shepherd? I can just imagine Spurgeon. I can just imagine Spurgeon as he stands at the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit there in London, England, the the church that Doreen and I had a chance to visit just a few months ago. And I could just see him with that, that British accent saying, What kind of a Savior is this? Who would serve you, who would serve me and become our shepherd? Now, the Hebrew word translated shepherd means to watch over. The word means to to tend or to minister. And so, in the time we have left, we want to ask exactly what is it that the shepherd does? What is it that the shepherd accomplishes? And there are six observations I want you to see. First and foundationally, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember that, that that the shepherd owns his sheep. The shepherd owns his sheep. And this is something that we have forgotten about, I think, even in the church. 
You hear comments like this, in America especially, it's my body, I'll do what I want with it. Have you heard that said? Both men, men and women say that. It's my body, I'll do as I please. Yet the Bible says this, the shepherd of our souls, that is Jesus Christ, he owns the sheep. When the Bible says that the Lord is my shepherd, we should automatically assume something. In fact, look with me again at Psalm chapter 23, verse 1. And we read, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, it's easily in a devotional setting to read Psalm chapter 23 in about 20 seconds, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, da 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 But next time you read it, remember when you read, the Lord is my shepherd, remember to say to yourself, ah, Yahweh owns me. He owns me. He is the one that stands in authority over me as his sheep. And so since the shepherd owns us, it follows that he alone calls the shots. He alone makes the rules. He is the one who stands in authority over us. And so once again, we come face to face with the reality of the lordship of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 3 says that Jesus is Lord. In his unbelievable book, it's one of the most influential books in my life. When John MacArthur wrote the gospel according to Jesus, he said this, that is the single, central, foundational, and distinguishing article of Christianity. So the true gospel, according to Jesus, is a message that cannot be divorced from the reality of his lordship. And as you read Christian books, and as you hear pastors, and you listen to theologians, you'll hear this time and time again, the denial of the lordship of Jesus Christ. The denial of the Lordship of Christ. MacArthur is certainly right. The gospel message, the gospel message is at its very basic element, proclaims the message of Lordship. First Peter chapter 2 verse 9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What does that mean? That means my time does not belong to me. That means my possessions do not belong to me. That means my, my financial resources do not belong to me. My time and my treasures and my talents, the gifts that God has given me, these are all on loan. You think especially about the area of financial stewardship. One of our favorite subjects, right? You think about the area of financial stewardship and you realize that when Yahweh is Lord, that suggests He is Lord over every nook and cranny of our lives. And so when you're challenged to give, not only of your treasures, that is your money, but also your time and your talents, those resources, you realize it's not so sacrificial after all, is it? Rather, it's a, it's a joyful act of obedience to our chief shepherd. I want you to see also that the shepherd not only owns his sheep. Number two, I want you to see that the shepherd leads his sheep. He leads his sheep. Ezekiel chapter 34 gives us really a, an inside look at the way in which God is our shepherd. It says this, For thus says 
the Lord God. Let me stop for a moment. Whenever you read a verse that says, thus says the Lord God, what do you do? Oh, you sit up and you listen. Thus says the Lord God. By the way, every verse could be read that way. So from in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the end of book of Revelation, every book, every 66 books that we find in the pages of Scripture is a thus says the Lord. Here's what Ezekiel 34 says. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them from their own land. That is, we see that the shepherd leads his sheep by seeking them out until they're found. This shepherd leads his sheep by rescuing them from danger. Some of you here this morning have been rescued by the shepherd. In fact, if you're a Christian, you have all been rescued by a shepherd. Some of you have been rescued in practical ways where you have been loved by the membership of Christ's fellowship. Where they have come alongside you and, and encouraged you and helped you and stood beside you during the difficult days. And that's exactly what we need. This shepherd also leads his people by, by restoring them to a place of usefulness. As I wrote these three sentences, it struck me, should not this lead us to well up in wonder? That the shepherd sought us out, that the shepherd rescued us, that the shepherd restored us to a place of youthfulness, or usefulness. Rather. Each one of us was once a lost sheep. Each one of us were on the brink of disaster. We were like those sheep who followed the, the leadership in the country of Turkey, and we were ready to go off that cliff. But the shepherd sought us out. The shepherd rescued us from danger. The shepherd, once again, restored us to a place of usefulness. Number three, please see that the shepherd also feeds his sheep. He feeds his sheep. Continuing in Ezekiel 34, the Bible says, And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of this country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. Let me say this. Jesus Christ... Your shepherd is deeply interested in your spiritual well-being. Jesus Christ, as your shepherd, intends that, that each of us grow in grace. Colossians chapter 1 says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, I want to have all the sheep, would you, please don't do this physically, but you're, you're with me in the metaphor, kind of perk your ears up. You've seen a sheep do that and listen. This is the primary way that a sheep grows in the Lord, by devouring the Word of God, by consuming the Word of God. 
When Jereen and I got on a, a train in London and we traveled north to the beautiful country of Scotland, all along the way we saw, we literally saw thousands upon thousands of sheep. And guess what most of those sheep were doing? They were eating. You ever seen those sheep? Whether they're American sheep or Scottish sheep or British sheep, they're, they're all eating. And that, that's kind of what sheep do. Now, the last several months, the Elder Council has talked from time to time about this subject of consuming the Word of God. And I believe that it begins with the elders. That if the elders are not consuming the Word of God, that the congregation will follow just like the sheep in Turkey and go right off the cliff. And so I'm challenging the elders and we're challenging one another to to consume the word of God. So just a few months ago, some of you have heard the story. I was challenging the elders to just take take some time and read the book of Colossians every day for a month. I'll never forget this when this happened. Ken Olson said, Pastor Dave, is that a challenge? And I said, yes, it is. And so there it was. And so Several days ago, last week or the week before, I can't remember, Ken came to me and said, would it be okay if I challenged the congregation with that same thing? And you remember he did that. And I backed him up on that. And I've been talking to people throughout the week. Just talked to one of my dear friends this morning who said, I'm reading the book of Colossians every day. Four chapters every day. And my suspicion is that some of you aren't stopping there. You have other devotional things that you've been doing, and you're tacking on the book of Colossians. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Well, here's what's going to happen. If Christ Fellowship commits itself, if we commit ourselves to consuming the Word of God, you know what's going to happen? Growth. Spiritual growth. It's like the, the sheep in Scotland. Those sheep are eating day after day after day after day. You know what happens? I'm not a nutritionologist, but I do know this. They're getting fat. They're getting big, and we want to get big spiritually. We want to get fat spiritually, pardon the metaphor. We want to grow in grace. We want to eat and consume and memorize and study and meditate on the pages of Scripture. Apart from the Word of God, here's what will happen. Apart from the Word of God, as sheep, we will grow spiritually impoverished. But as we commit to spending time in the Word, we will grow into mature and healthy followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Kent Hughes puts it like this. You can never have a Christian mind without reading the Scriptures. You can never have a Christian mind without reading the Scriptures regularly because you cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. If you are filled with the Word of God, Hughes said, your life can then be informed and directed by God. Your relationships, your child-rearing, your career, your ethical decisions, your interior moral life, the way to a Christian mind is through reading the Word of God. I'm convinced that every junior high school student and every high school student, every college student at a young age, if they would feed on the Word of God by the time... They get to be young adults. They will be well on their way to having a Christian mind. And by the way, if young people, if you do that, you will be a unique group of people in this culture. Because very few Christians in our day have a committed, devoted Christian mind. Number four, I want you to see that the shepherd also protects his sheep. 
He owns them, He leads them, He feeds them, and He also protects them. And it should be very clear what He protects them from. First, He protects them from wandering. We've seen the propensity for sheep to wander. Our shepherd is so kind to protect us from wandering. He also protects us from error, namely theological error. Of course, one of the primary threats to the sheep is the big, bad wolf. Paul said this in Acts chapter 20. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. And by the way, he meant come into the the local church family. Excuse me. What he meant was this, is that when the Apostle Paul would depart, he was anticipating that false teachers would come into the local church and not necessarily get up and start preaching like I'm preaching, but what they would do, they they would go in among the children. They would go into small group Bible studies, and they would begin to influence people, and they would teach heretical ideas. Paul says, this is going to happen, and they will not spare the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men who speak twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, the chief way that the shepherd protects his sheep is through his under-shepherds. And what I mean is, our chief shepherd is the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the chief ways he protects the sheep is by raising up godly pastors and elders to do the work of the ministry. He calls pastors and elders to attend to the needs of the flock and to protect them from wolves who would do them harm. He says this again in Acts 20, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. This is written to the elders, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his own blood. One of my heroes, John Calvin, says it like this. He says, and he's speaking to pastors and elders, Let them edify the body of Christ. Let them devastate Satan's reign. Let them pasture the sheep. Kill the wolves. That's my favorite part. Let them kill the wolves. Instruct and exhort the rebellious. Let them bind and loose, thunder and lightning if necessary. But let them do it all according to the word of God. Suffice it to say, this shepherd and his under-shepherds protect their sheep. Related to that is number five, that the shepherd also preserves his sheep. Many of you know that one of the oftentimes debated matters in the New Testament church is the matter that concerns eternal security. That is to say, can we lose our salvation? And this is, I can remember even as a, as a college student, wondering why this was such a debated point. Because the answer of this question is, is abundantly clear in the pages of Scripture. I want to encourage you today that if you have ever been taught you can lose your salvation, if you've ever been taught that the doctrine of perseverance of the saints was not found in the pages of Scripture, if you've ever been taught that you can apostatize, that is, abandon the faith as a child of God, you've been taught incorrectly. Because the Word of God states clearly that you cannot lose your salvation, that God will guard your salvation until the end of the day. In John chapter 10, and as I thought through this issue, I thought, where do you start and where do you stop? I remember several years ago, I taught a 12-week class on perseverance of the saints. 
We spent over 12 hours answering this question. So here's a few verses for your consideration. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Let's stop for a minute. This is Jesus who says, They will never perish. And so someone says, when they say you can lose your salvation, what are they saying? They're saying Jesus was wrong. Jesus here says in clear terms, they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Would you go quickly with me to Romans chapter 8? Because I think it would be important that you uh, allow your eyes to look at these very important words in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 35. And I selected this section of Scripture, especially for those of you who are are wrestling. And I I have many conversations throughout the weeks of people who struggle with eternal security. They think they have done something. They think they have thought something. They think that something way in their past, even 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, has, has negated their salvation. If that is you, listen to this verse. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here is the argument that you will hear. And I promise to make this quick. Yes, I understand. Jesus will never leave you. He is committed to never leaving you. However, this is the argument, and it's an unbiblical argument. You can use your free will to walk away from Jesus. Now, if you think about it, you're thinking really clearly this morning. I think you will see through the, the, the anti-logic there. It's anti-biblical. It's sub-biblical. Because when Jesus says he will protect you to the end of the age, he will guard your salvation to the end of the age, if you believe so strongly in your free will that you can walk away from the grasp of Jesus, you have a very robust view of free will that needs to be modified and eliminated. First you modify it. Then you eliminate it. Jesus Christ, as our shepherd, will preserve his sheep. Not one sheep will be lost. Isn't that encouraging? Not one sheep will be lost. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you... Ask yourself, did God begin a good work in you in, in the 70s or the 80s or the 90s or last week or last month? If he did, Paul says this... He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so we run to the bank and we, we embrace this promise. We run to the bank. We, we bank on the reality that Jesus as our shepherd will preserve his sheep. Finally, I want you to see with me that this shepherd dies for his sheep. 
The good shepherd dies for his sheep. Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And these words should, should just make your heart well up in worship. Jesus says this, I lay down my life for the sheep. Here we have the, the, the very pinnacle of the Savior's love for us. It's like we, we climb Mount Everest, right? We're almost 30,000 feet and we get to the top and we realize at the pinnacle, at the very peak of the mountain, the love of God says this, Jesus Christ laid down His life for the sheep. We find the greatest love ever displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I want to wrap this up by asking, what does it all mean? What does it mean for me? How can I apply these great realities to my personal life today? The answer to this question is actually found in verse 1, if you would look at it with me. We've already taken really the whole morning to unpack the phrase, the Lord is my shepherd. When I say, what does it mean to me? You say, I don't think I see the answer. The answer is after the semicolon. What does it mean to me? How do I apply these things? The answer is, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Once again, this would be a verse that would be easy to, to pass by devotionally. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Da, 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 da. Oh, by the way, I need to read the book of Colossians. Right? But don't skip over this amazing Amazing truth. I shall not want. What does it mean? There are several things I would commend to your attention. First, I am completely at peace. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. For the shepherd covers my sins and he he has reconciled me to a, a thrice holy God. I have wandered away as a sheep and Jesus has tracked me down and he has found me. Therefore now I am completely at peace because I've been reconciled. To God. Second, I rest secure. I rest secure. For the Good Shepherd controls every circumstance and is orchestrating a plan for my good and His glory. Ask yourself are you in a position right now? You're in a situation in your life where something's not adding up? You don't like what your job looks like. You don't like what your family looks like. You don't like how your hobbies are turning out. You don't like your schooling situation. You're sad, you're discouraged, you're depressed, you're lonely. There's a million things that we could all be going through. Know this, that the Good Shepherd controls each and every circumstance. And He is orchestrating a plan for your good and for His glory. Number three, I have an eternal perspective. For the Shepherd reminds me that... I will have tribulation in this world, but the shepherd also reminds me that he has overcome the world. Finally, and this is where the rubber meets the road. When the psalmist says, I shall not want, we can utter these words. I am completely content. No, I'm not. You don't know me. You 
should be completely content. I should be completely content. Why? Because we serve an all-sufficient shepherd. Philip Keller, not to be confused with Timothy Keller, wrote a book several years ago entitled, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm Chapter 23. Some of you may have read it. It's a, it's a fascinating book because this author, Philip Keller, was a shepherd at one point in his life, and he's been a, a tremendous encouragement to me as I've studied through the words of Psalm chapter 23, and as he compares what it's like to actually be a shepherd, to serve and worship the shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. He says, Contentment should be the hallmark of the man or woman who has put his or her affairs in the hands of God. And if you're like me, you're convicted by that. That contentment should be the hallmark of the man or the woman who has put his or her affairs in the hands of God. And so this morning I would ask, are you satisfied with this all-sufficient shepherd? Are you trusting that he has your best interests in mind? I believe that when King David... When he sat down and penned Psalm chapter 23, 1, he did it with a heart that was exploding with reverence. He did it with a a heart that was exploding in trust. That is, he had faith in God's character and deep trust in the promises of God. And that's my prayer as one of your shepherds this morning, as one of your under-shepherds, that you can affirm together and that you can affirm to Yahweh that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, the great plan uh, to send the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to be our shepherd. To track us down, uh, to, to feed us, to teach us, to preserve us, and to care for us and to love us with the heart of a shepherd. Help us to, to see all the, the ways that he can do that and does do that. May it become a, a daily part of our lives. Father, I pray that our, our trust would be in this shepherd. That we would cast all our hope and future upon uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. That if there's anyone here today battling with fear or anxiety or loneliness or guilt, that they would cast all their their, uh, cares upon him. That they would rest in his great care for, for them. And so God, I pray that you would encourage this your people. I pray that you would stabilize them. I pray that you would lift them up. I pray for the ones who are discouraged that you would, you would breathe fresh courage and faith into their hearts and into their souls. And even now as we partake of the Lord's Supper, may we be reminded that uh, these elements are just illustrations. They are metaphors of, that point to the reality of Jesus, His body and his blood that was shed for us. Help us to remember that we will never be satisfied apart from all that God is from us in Christ Jesus. I pray that we would rest in Christ and all that he's done for us. So may this be a special time of worship as we close the service together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.